Well, this morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to begin uh, our new series in the book of James. So we're moving on from Isaiah. I feel like I want to mulligan on that series and try it again, but uh, we won't. We'll carry on uh, into James. I feel like there's a lot left that could be said about uh, Isaiah, and there is. Uh, So you can continue to study and read that on your own. Before I read this morning's passage that we're going to be looking at, just a comment about why do we do this? I mean, earlier Dave read Psalm 93. I'm going to be reading from the book of James. Why is Scripture reading part of our service? And without being trite, we read Scripture because it's the Word of God. That's why. When we come to this, we don't, we don't come to a human book. We don't come to something which is inspired in a lowercase i sense, the way Shakespeare is inspired. We come to something which is inspired by the very Spirit of God as he leads human authors, yes, with their own personalities, yes, with their own vocabulary and grammatical structures and way of phrasing things and all of the rest. John does not write like Paul. But the Holy Spirit guides these authors to write precisely what it is that he wants so that there's a one-to-one verbal correspondence between the word they choose and the word he wants to breathe out of his own mouth. So the finished product is the inspired, inerrant, that is without error, infallible, that is it cannot make an error, word of God. Uh, the Bible is so important, it, becomes, it is the, the foundation, it is sort of the center of what we do here. And next week in Sunday School, we're going to be beginning uh, a class on the subject of hermeneutics with the adults, and that's about how do we properly interpret Scripture. So we want to be reading Scripture, but how do we interpret it? Uh, what, are, what are the principles, the literary interpretive principles that we bring to this book? So those are the, those are the things we're going to be discussing. Uh, so we'll be laying down some principles and some ideas. We'll also be working through some text together in Sunday school. Uh, we might even uh, apply some hermeneutical principles to hymns and songs to see how do we actually get the proper meaning out of these things. So that'll be starting, Lord willing, next Sunday. James chapter 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. This is the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person, or the, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Before we uh, consider this passage this morning, uh, we're going to pray, as we already have uh, several times uh, throughout the service. And again, this one is relatively obvious, and you know, we pray because the Lord has commanded us to pray. 
but we also pray because this is how we acknowledge the relationship that we have with God. And when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he begins, our Father, that is, as you immediately establish the relationship that you have, our Father who is in heaven. That is, there is a transcendence there. God is imminent. He is close to us. He is our Father, but He is also our authority, our King, and infinitely high above us. And so when we pray, we have those two things in mind. It's about reminding ourselves of the relationship we have with God. It is not in the first instance to get things done. It is not to make God do our will. It is to bring us to a posture of submission to His will, as difficult as that may be at times. It's an acknowledgement that we need help. The reality is the reason we pray in our services this morning is that we're recognizing if God doesn't do it, there's no point in us being here. If God's Spirit doesn't teach us, there's no point in trying to work through His Word. If God's Spirit doesn't enliven our hearts, there's no point in singing because it will just be singing, it won't be worship. And so we pray to position ourselves in that relationship with God, very self-consciously looking to Him to do what we cannot do for our good and also for His glory. So take a moment individually to bow before the Lord in prayer, and after just a short time, I'll lead us together. Our Father in heaven, it is our desire that your name will be hallowed. And we know that it already is. It is, it is maximally holy as we learn in Isaiah. And so, Lord, we do not pray that you will become more holy. You are intrinsically maximally holy. We pray that you will be recognized for who you are. We pray that we will see your holiness with clarity. We pray that the world will see that your name is holy, holy, holy. Lord, this morning we pray that your spirit will will work in us. We all come from different backgrounds and circumstances. Uh, Some come in this morning with heavy hearts. Some come in uh, with rejoicing hearts. Some come with with hearts that, that are containing both. And so, Lord, we ask that you will touch every one of us by your Spirit in a special way this morning. Uh, We think of uh, Chantel and Ryan. We pray that you will bless them as they begin their married life together. Watch over them. Uh, Keep them uh, strong and safe in your Spirit. Uh, Bless them with much joy. Lord, we pray also for the Moffats. We pray uh, for Phyllis. We pray for their children and grandchildren. Lord, we recognize that Murray was just a great man in your grace, that he was a blessing to our church community, he was a blessing to this city and in wider areas, he was a blessing to his friends and neighbors, and in a very special, particular way, he was a blessing to his family. And so, Lord, we pray that you will give them all the strength and love and grace and comfort that they need. Uh, Help us to be wise also in ministering to them. We thank you for them. We thank you for the influence and impact that they have. And we pray that you will just be, be their support, be what they need uh, at this time. 
Help us, Lord, uh, to live our lives in a way which is pleasing and honoring to you. Shape us and mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Help us to be good servants of the gospel. Help us to represent you well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just before we begin to work through this text together, uh, a comment about why we do this. I mean, why, why do we preach? Why do we have sermons? Uh, the reality is uh, the Old and New Testament are filled with proclamation. Uh, prophets, Jesus himself, uh, the apostles, the book of Acts is filled with preaching. That's a New Testament pattern. And when Paul writes to Timothy, you know, his great charge to Timothy at the end of his life, at the end of Paul's life, that is, is preach the word. You know, so this becomes essential in the life of the church. The way that God has ordained things is that his word is to be not only studied, it is to be proclaimed. And so in preaching, what we want is we want to think about the text, we want to be faithful to the text, the word of God, hopefully give the sense of it, that is, what is a saying, and then apply it. And what does it mean? How are we to live this out? Uh, sometimes preaching has been called, or as I said, it's sort of God's word mediated through human personality. And, and that's when everyone wishes that I had a better personality to mediate it through. And I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, but this is what we're trying to do. You know, we're, we're trying to bring the word of God through human personality into a human community, which is a reminder, though, that preaching, although there is a special authority to it, as the proclamation of the Word of God through the Spirit, this is, this is not merely like a Bible class where, every, where there's sort of an egalitarianism and, and everyone sort of just gets to chime in with what they think. There is an authority in the proclamation and preaching of the Word which, uh, which is unlike anything else because it's how God applies His Word and brings it to bear on human hearts today. Now, having said that, it is essential to realize, though, and I know that you do, I've given you lots of opportunity to notice. The one preaching is not the one who's infallible. The one preaching is not the authority. The authority is the Word of God. And so in that sense, even when preaching is taking place, even when you're listening to a sermon, you are to listen to it critically by the Spirit with the text and other texts firmly in mind because the one who is preaching will at times be wrong. And that's when you, following the Spirit, recognize that as our statement of faith says, the Word of God alone is our highest authority, not your pastoral staff, not the podcast, not the preacher, not the book, except this book is our authority. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, James is Jesus' half-brother, and the reason we want to stress half-brother in this context is not that there isn't a full sort of uh, familial brotherhood between, uh, between Jesus and James. It's a reminder that, that Jesus' father is God himself, okay? And so the mother, uh, James' mother would be Mary, but the father is Joseph. For, for Jesus, the father is Almighty God, all right? The special conceptive work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the virgin. So James is Jesus' half-brother. We know in John 7 that during Jesus' beginning phases of his earthly ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. His brothers did not recognize him as the Messiah. But James actually becomes a dominant figure in the New Testament, although he's rarely mentioned. Uh, In the book of Acts, for example, 
or Acts 15, so-called Jerusalem or Apostolic Council. It's an amazing thing. You think if there was ever a conference you could go to, this would have been the one you wanted to be at. Peter gets up, and Peter talks about what's going on in terms of Cornelius and the Spirit going to the Gentiles. Then Paul gets up, and and Paul talks about what's going on. You think it's exciting to go here, whoever you want to go here today. This is Peter and Paul in the same room giving a report about how the Spirit is taking the gospel around the world. And so they report what's going on. And then James gets up and James says, all right, well, we've heard Peter and Paul. This is what we're going to do. He's the one who's in charge. He has an enormous amount of authority, an enormous amount of power. Uh, In Galatians 1.19, he's noted as the Lord's brother. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the first things, the things of first importance which he has received and is passing on, one of them is that the Lord has appeared to different people, and he mentions James specifically, one of the very few people that Paul mentions specifically. The Lord has appeared to James. So he's a very important figure in the church, even though this is the only short letter that he writes. But notice, here's James, the brother of Jesus. And when he writes, he doesn't leverage that. Remarkably, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would it take for you to happily say that when you identify yourself, I am a servant of my brother? That's what James does. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in doing that too, what James is doing is more than being humble, he's also equating the two. In one breath, not a servant of God and of Gabriel, or a servant of God and the apostles. It's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when he uses the the, the title Lord in conjunction with God, what he is doing is he's identifying, he's equating his service is equally under God and Jesus. Now, how could that make any sense at all? Well, it only makes sense if James has come to believe that his brother actually is equal to God. What would it take for you to be convinced that your sibling was equal to God. Well, maybe something like an atoning death. Maybe something like a resurrection. Maybe post-resurrection appearances. The Lord appeared to James. James has been confronted with the fact that his brother is the Son of God incarnate. And, not, and he's not bitter about it. They talk about you know, an opportunity for sibling rivalry that you're not going to win. You know, he, he's not upset about this. He actually comes to dedicate his life to serving his brother. My brother, Jesus, is God. He's the Lord, and I'm his servant. So that's how he identifies himself. And then he identifies the people he's writing to, metaphorically, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. He's writing to people who are in the diaspora. That is, he's writing to people who have been dispersed through persecution. You begin to see how this starts, of course, in the book of Acts. The church is scattered. And so James is writing to believers who have been driven out of their homes. He's writing to people who have lost all of their possessions. If you're driven out, out of home, you know, all of your things are there. 
They, they, they likely have no money. They've seen people beaten. They've seen people even executed. They've seen people pulled off to jail. They've lost friends and family and loved ones, and now they are, in, in a literal sense, refugees. In fact, we'll talk more about refugees uh, in two weeks, uh, but the first usage of the word refugee was actually used uh, of the French Huguenots, uh, when they had to flee France because of religious persecution. So you, even our English word refugee has religious overtones. It, it's about people who flee for religious persecution in the first instance of the usage of the term. But to be anachronistic and to throw the term all the way back into the first century, the reality is what James is doing is he's writing to people who are religious refugees. He's writing to people who have been persecuted and have had to flee for their lives. He greets them. And you think of all the things you could say, if you were to write to people who have had to flee because of religious persecution, what are you going to say? You, you want to be encouraging, you want to provide comfort, you, know, you, you want to empathize and sympathize, you maybe want to give you know, a word of wisdom. This is what he says. In full recognition of all that's gone on, consider it pure joy. These are the sorts of things you say as a pastor to persecuted people right before the deacons fire you. Consider it pure joy. James, you've lost your train of thought. How can you write into this situation and these are your opening remarks. Well, consider is actually a, a technical term. It's an accounting term. And so what he's doing is he's saying, I want you to consider this pure joy. That is, you have your assets and your liabilities column. I realize like this sort of accounting book work wasn't created back then, but we just work with it today. You have your, your, your system of assets and liabilities. Is what I want you to do is I want you to consider, that is, I want you to chalk up this experience in the assets column of your life. You're going to have a heading that says pure joy, and this is where this goes. You file it under pure joy. Pure joy is not nothing but joy, as if this whole experience is just so delightful. It's talking about intensity and quality. There's a purity to the joy. It's not nothing but joy, but it's pure And what do you consider pure joy? What are you to account in your life as something which has a purity of joy? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, reminding of family relationship. He's not a callous external observer. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now this is utterly counterintuitive. When you face trials of various kinds, you can think through life, you recognize, you can think of as many different types of trials as I can. There are all kinds. And whenever you face trials of many kinds, whatever that variety is that falls into your life, you are to consider it pure joy. Now, 
This is where we're thankful that he did not write something impossible like consider it pure happiness whenever you face trials of many kinds because in some circumstances it is impossible to be happy. He does not say that you will not experience pain. In fact, sort of as a diagnostic clue, it's not a trial unless it's hard. So one of the ways that you know it's a trial is if it's hard and if there's pain. If there's no pain, if it's easy going, then it's not a trial. We usually call those things sort of unmitigated blessings, right? It doesn't say consider it pure joy whenever you face unmitigated blessings of all kinds. We're already doing that. We don't need the accounting. We don't need to conceptualize it that way. We're doing it intuitively. We're doing it naturally. But when there's something hard, when there's something difficult, when there's something uh, which, which actually causes an enormous amount of pain, that's where you need to start thinking theologically because your natural intuitive response will not be in line with what God has for you in this case. Whatever those trials are, frankly, some trials are, are intensely painful for a short time. Some trials are painful, but the real attendant pain is the duration. It's like Chinese water torture. Day after day after day after day of compounding misery with no light visible at the end of the tunnel. And some are both. Some are intensely painful for protracted periods of time. And they all come for a variety of ways, through a variety of means. So you're not supposed to feel pure happiness, but you are to consider it pure joy. Well, why? Because you know, and know here is a key verb. You know this. In, in philosophy class last Wednesday, I told the students when it comes to epistemology, you can't know something that is false. You could know a false, you know a claim and identify it as false, but you can't actually know something that is false. You can only know things that are true. It's not knowledge if it's wrong, in other words. So you can know. You can know and understand this because it's true. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Testing is a very rare word that James selects here. Uh, It refers to a refining and purifying process. Similar to what Peter will write about when he talks about our faith being like pure gold, being refined through fire. James is saying the testing, when you experience testing, what God is doing is he is refining you. He is purifying you. He's removing dross. He's removing things from you that ought not to be there. The testing of your faith, your faith is precious to you. It's how you relate to God. The refining of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance means to remain under. That is, is you, you, you have a heavy load. You know, that you can, you can carry for a long period of time. And, and so you build up strength. 
You know, the, the longer you exercise your muscles, the stronger you get. You know, so that if, you, if you're a laborer over time, you, know, you can carry heavier burdens longer. You know, if you're portaging when you're canoeing, if you do this all the time, then you can carry heavy burdens longer. I mean, you, you develop strength. Faith has muscle. Faith has sinew. Uh, faith can, can stretch Faith can grow stronger, so you can bear up, so you can persevere longer. That's what is going on with trials. When your faith is being refined, your faith is getting stronger. Now, that sounds delightful, except if you didn't have the trial in the first place, you wouldn't need to be persevering. So you want to say, well, you know, I appreciate that, but how about I don't get perseverance, then I won't need it, and then I don't need the trial. This is a perfect system, less trials, then I won't need the perseverance. I won't need a stronger faith. That seems good to me. I'll just sit around and eat the equivalent of spiritual ice cream, and that will be wonderful. Well, the problem with that is that, you know, you're stopping too soon. You don't have enough perseverance. Perseverance is not the end. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, God is giving you perseverance, not as sort of just so you can run on a treadmill not getting anywhere. He's giving you perseverance so you can go out and run through life. You can run the race set before you. He doesn't, he doesn't put you on a treadmill. He puts you outside in creation. It's a trail run. It's beautiful, but trail runs are hard. And so you go out and he says, here, here's this life. Here's real life. Now go run. I'm going to make you strong. You're going to persevere. The running isn't an end in itself. The trial isn't an end in itself. Perseverance is not an end in itself. Perseverance is so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is going to make you, through all the circumstances of your life, he is going to make you the person he wants you to be. And it's going to be hard. And there is suffering. And there are tears. And there will be trials of many different kinds. One of the trials, frankly, is seeing how some people are exempted from certain types of trials that you endure. One of the trials is seeing the happiness and blessing that people experience in areas of life where you want exactly that type of blessing and experience. And wondering why. And then trying to submit to God because what He is doing is He is making you mature and complete. And if you are mature, that's what you'd want to be, is mature and Complete. In fact, the language that's used, which is sort of paraphrastically translated here, is, is James literally says that you may be perfect. Now, now we, we pull back from that because in our English connotation, perfect sort of means, you know, absolutely perfect. And we know that that won't be the case when we're in glory. That's not what James is meaning. James is meaning perfect in the sense of, of arriving at the goal. And the goal here is to be mature, to be who you ought to be. Mature and complete. That's a positive way of saying it. Negatively, it's not lacking anything. And, and, and what, what 
you're called to do in faith then is to trust God and say, well, I don't want to be immature and incomplete, lacking everything. And so, God, I'm going to trust that in the end this is better. I'm going to trust that somehow even this is a pathway to you forming me into what I ought to be, mature and complete. But notice that you have a responsibility here. Let perseverance finish its work. In other words, you can, you can circumvent this process. You can short-circuit it. You can stop. You can stop pushing, stop growing. You can settle. You can pull back. Instead of moving forward, let perseverance finish its work. Wait and hope. Trust, love, God will make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. Speaking of lacking, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In other words, trials cast you on God. God then refines your faith like gold. And this is so important to you that you count it as joy. It's pure joy to be made complete and perfect in the sight of God, no matter what. But frankly, I'm not wise enough to get there and probably neither are you, which is why we need help, which is why we ask God. We ask God for help. We ask God for wisdom. We don't know what we ought to do, or we do know what we ought to do. We don't seem to be able to do it. So we ask God, God, make me wise. I need wisdom. And we're told that God is very generous with his wisdom. If you ask for wisdom, he gives it to you. He gives freely, he gives generously without finding fault. That is, he doesn't come along and say, well, come on, you should have figured this out by now. You shouldn't need my help. You know, what's wrong with you after all this time? After all I've done for you? No, he, he surrounds you, and, and with generosity, he pours wisdom out into your life. He, he knows that you need him. He knows that it's hard. He knows that you're scared. He knows that you're lost. He knows that you're lonely. He knows that. And he's calling you to himself through it. You lack wisdom, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you generously. I, I, I won't chastise you. I won't find fault. I won't, I won't point at all the things that you're doing wrong. I'll give it to you because you need it. God's not surprised that we need wisdom. He looks at how we're living. He already knows it. He wants to give it to us. He delights to give it to us. He wants to pour wisdom and love into our lives. It will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. One of the worst things we can do when it comes to God 
is try to generate a certain emotional, devotional disposition when we come to him. That is, some of us try to make a devotion time into a time that generates certain feelings of, quote-unquote, closeness with God. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotions. I mean, we should try to generate them. But you're not trying to just make yourself believe. You know, as if some of you just sort of tighten up your stomach muscles enough, you know, then somehow faith will just come out with an intensity and, and then God can't say no. So it's not about sort of trying to, trying to feel like you have a lot of faith. It's actually believing God. And, and what you're being told here is, look, if you don't believe God's promises, you're, you're not really going to ask. Or you're going to ask half-heartedly. Or you're going to ask one day and then, then give it up and, and ask six months later and, and be hot and cold about it, but not really expect God's going to do anything. Such a person is unstable. They don't have a solid foundation. They're like a wave tossed by the sea. They're not going to receive anything from the Lord. They're not really asking God. They don't really trust God. They don't, they don't believe God's word. They don't believe God's promises. Now, notice, because I think this is actually really important. The prayer is for wisdom, and, God, and the promise that you'll be given that. The promise is not that you'll be exempted from everything that causes you pain. This is not a blanket promise that anything you ask for will be given to you. It's context-specific. You're experiencing trials. God will give you wisdom to get through them, to persevere in them if you ask him for it. It's not about getting anything you want. This person who doesn't really trust God is double-minded and unstable. Literally, they're double-souled. That is, they're sort of split between faith and no faith. They, they, want to be, they want to follow God, but they also want to be like the world. They're, they're not sure how to navigate these things. They're unstable in all their paths. Uh, NIV brings it across as all their ways. It's, it's actually all their paths, uh, it, literally, which, which does connote Proverbs and wisdom literature. One of the great wisdom metaphors and images is of the paths. What, what road are you on? And so they're unstable in all of their paths. They, they don't walk according to wisdom. And so you need wisdom. You ask God and, and you trust. You believe that God will grant it to you so that you are able to walk through life properly. They're unstable in all that they do in all of their paths. Now, What do you do? Here's the text. A lot more to say about it. Okay, but what do you do in real life? It's okay to say this and to praise God in a flippant way, when you're not experiencing trials currently. But when you are, as undoubtedly some are this morning, what do you do with this? What do you do with the fact that in the horrible pain of her life, Lucy Maud Montgomery 
our author of many wonderful works of literature, including Anne of Green Gables, has a spirit which is so keenly poetic that she can see beauty everywhere and feel it with deepest joy. But because of that constitution, because of that that enormous gift, she's also able to to see ugliness everywhere and experience depths of pain indexed to her sensitivity. As she sees global chaos, first world war, and all the death, the incoherence of that. And also deeply painful private experiences of her life. And Isaiah, you will recall the Lord's servant comes and a bruised reed he does not break. And Jesus says, he quotes that about himself. In her journals, in a cry of agony, Lucy Maud Montgomery says, the bruised reed he does break. In other words, here's what the Bible says. And here in my experience, I go looking for comfort and peace, and all I find is that I'm broken. What do we do with the fact, the reality, that people also leave the faith over their trials? That the world has left all kinds of people broken and hurting. That's also real. That's, that's part of this world. Can we, can we acknowledge the truth of that as a church community? Can we, can, we just, can we just be honest that the world and pain and suffering also breaks people? It does. What you are called to is something very, very hard. You are called to trust that somehow, in light of all that takes place in this world, there is a good that is greater than evil. That ultimately there is comfort greater than sorrow, that there is joy greater than pain, that there is gain greater than loss because of what Jesus Christ has done. In other words, the great question that everyone needs to wrestle with and resolve despite the empirical data of the world and things people have individually experienced, the great question ultimately is just this. Is the gospel true? 
Is there a Savior who has conquered sin and death? Is there a Savior who has taken upon himself the guilt and the shame and the horror and the suffering and the pain of the world and has paid for it and in paying for it has exhausted it and redeemed it and through it is creating the new heavens and new earth that Isaiah ends with, the home of righteousness where things are finally put right? In other words, is there a God in sovereign control on the throne of the universe who will have his way even if it's not right now? That, what I mean by that is this, is that even if right now we see the process of refining, we don't see the end result. Because if all you do is look around at what's going on at this little slice of time and history, without seeing the final end that God has ordained. Frankly, if this is all there is, there is no hope. If this is all there is, there is no point. There is nothing redemptive. But if the gospel is true, anchored in Jesus' atoning substitutionary death, life and resurrection, then there is eternal life. And sometimes Christians, I think it's well-meaning, but I think it's just absolutely wrong. Sometimes Christians say, oh, well, you know, when, when we get there, when we see all that God has done, all of the pain and suffering won't have mattered. No, it does matter. It matters a lot. It matters eternally. It's cruel to think that that all of those tears meant nothing, that that all that heartache, all all of that pain, all that isolation, physical, emotional, spiritual, existential, that all that just didn't count? No, it counts. It counts because God loves you. Counsel because God doesn't stand outside of it, he enters into it. His son enters into your pain. He enters into all the things that, that shatter your heart and your soul and your mind. He takes it all upon himself. And he perseveres all the way to the end and pays for it all on Calvary's cross not to sympathize with you, but to conquer it for you, to defeat it, to give you strength and wisdom today, bright hope for tomorrow, and everlasting life. And you can consider that pure joy, no matter what. Well, may God help us. May God help us by the Spirit to be orientated to himself through Jesus, to consider it pure joy. I'm going to ask your musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.